that's Mark just exa- exactly what we've been talking about. I just, <laughs> to, I just wanted to get the name if of the book. Right? <laughs> used up all our fucking chat. Exactly. That's always the way it happens. You recorded uh, all that, yeah? <laughs> yeah, so it all gets recorded. That's all the good chat gone. Uh, hello, folks. This is uh, Scott's way here on the road. Um, we've come through. It seems quite right that we're uh, talking to Doug Johnson in a pub for some reason. I'm not quite sure <laughs> that, why that is. Saturday but afternoon drinking. Mm. Yeah, in the SBA in Portobello. And uh, we're just going to talk about your life and work, as they say, <laughs> yes. all together. It's going to be just like the Paris Review, yeah? <laughs> Absolutely, oh, yeah. Stuff, Paris stuff. Review with pints, I'm ah, sure that's nice. the way it works. We should, we should have done this ages ago, it's a much better idea. Uh, we've got you down, writer, musician and nuclear physicist. <laughs> what else? Who else gets an introduction like that? That's good, eh? Uh, and journalist, of course, as well. Um, so let's just... Go straight to the books. I think that might be the way to go. Okay. I mean, recently, you were talking. You were in uh, Margins Festival, and you said you would return and revisit your early, your first two novels, Tombstone and Andy Ossians. I think that's what you said. Do you remember saying that? Did it? No, I didn't have any lunch. I was drinking, so. No. Okay. Well, I think you kind of said that you, you wouldn't go back and reread them because uh, it wasn't. You felt you were maybe writing for an ideal of what uh, writing should be, rather than uh, writing your own voice or whatever, something like that. There's, there's a, there's a very, in my mind anyway, there's a very distinct difference between the first two books, the Penguin books, and yeah. the, my, my, my second two, which have come out with Faber, um, in that I'm much more concerned with character and plot now. And I, the first two books, they certainly, you know, hopefully they had that enough, you know, uh-huh. enough to keep keep folk reading. But they, they both sort of stem from ideas. You know, the first one, uh, Tombstone, was about how the past sort of shapes who you are and it was about, you know, I was like, was kind of inspired by Friends Reunited, that kind of weird okay. um, thing of getting back in touch with your past, um, which I always found really made my teeth itch a little bit. Yeah, like yes. Stuff. You know, there was stuff in the news about people getting divorced because they were getting back with Chelsea's sweethearts and all this sort of, you know, weird, weird, odd. weird stuff. Looking for a kind of happiness that was yeah. probably never going to happen. I know, I know, I know. And, um, and the obscenes was kind of this idea of Scottishness and all that sort of stuff wank and I was like um, you know I, after a while I mean that's fine and you know I, I stand by those books I wouldn't you know I wouldn't well I would slag them off but uh, <laughs> I, did. I did I did I did slag them off public which is stupid because they're coming out as ebooks Faber have bought the ebook rights they're coming uh, out. I'll just say I, I, I must admit I haven't read Tombstone but I think the audience it's certainly to me it's much more than a sense of Scottish I think there's a lot more going on there yeah I mean I, um yeah, okay, okay, oh, fair enough. But I mean, there is, there's, there's a lot going on. I mean, I'm stuff about, it's, obviously, it's about a band, and I was mm-hmm. using a lot more experience in that. I was interested in, sort of, um, you know, that I hadn't, I'd never seen that world um, adequately depicted in fiction. Uh, it's like a world that I knew really well. Uh, like we were just talking before we started recording about indie music, you know, how. <laughs> All the interesting stuff yeah, happens. I know. Uh, but it's like how indie minded I am, and how, you know, like, you know, there's a. You know, there's thousands of people in bands and go to these gigs on you know, the toilet circuit and, and for every Snow Patrol or Franz Ferdinand that breaks through, there's like a hundred equally as good bands who just yeah. didn't get the break or whatever. Um, and I, that really fascinated me how, about how you how you come to terms with that sort of failure, if it is a kind of failure mm. or is that, or you, could you turn it in, does it matter? I mean, we were also talking about Fence Collective and Fence Records and, you know, that's very much a thriving concern where they're not in the mainstream but they've found an adequate way of creating something and being creative and finding an audience and doing it really well and maintaining that and keeping it going and it's become a way of life for them you know and I really I'm really I'm, uh, I really admire that sort yeah. of stuff and I never saw any of that stuff kind of depicted in, in uh, fiction because you know 99 out of 100 books are you know Oxbridge uh, middle-class dinner parties you know all that sort of crap and just 
it just bored me stupid. So one of the things I really liked about the Aussies was, yeah, it, it, I mean, it's a, a book about bands, and often books about bands are awful. I mean, you know, they, they, they it's <laughs> you know, they really are, um, and it's about success, and it's, you know, or, or the problems with success. Actually, what you did was perhaps this is a very Scottish thing. You looked at the band who were falling apart on the page, um, yeah. particularly you know, with the behaviour of the lead singer. It was almost like a self. They wanted. They were. It's a journey in a way to King Tut's. This was their Oz. Yeah. Uh, if they can get there, um, and along the way, he seems intent whether he can help it or not on destroying this dream, which he seems to want but hates at the same time. Yeah. No. Um, one of the things. Yeah, that's. I was very, very deliberate, uh, Ali, because um, I'm not interested in rock biographies. Mm. I find like they're so boring. I'm, it's a really predictable, cliched. Um, your narrative arc to them, how you like, you know, band wants success, then they get success, then it's not all they they thought it was going to be, and then they fall apart, blah blah. blah. And like, you know, in every and uh, almost every novel that you read about a rock and roll band, that's exactly what happens, like Espadier Street or whatever, yeah. you know, like, um, all these sort of things. And I just, I just, I mean, that's fine, but it just doesn't interest me at all. No. Uh, I'm much more interested in this in uh, in failure <laughs> than success. I just, it's just, it's much more interesting to me how how you sort of cope with that, especially. If, I mean, with the Aussians, like, Connor's got this thing, this self-destructive streak a mile wide where he's, um, where he's bringing about his own failure, kind of subconsciously, uh, because he, because he's kind of heavily influenced by that whole self-loathing, grunge thing, yeah. you know, he references Kurt Cobain all the time and yeah. all that sort of stuff, but then he knows it, it's ironic, and he's getting caught up in ironic, like, knots, about whether he really does want success or not, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Which, I would imagine, Cobain was caught up in as well, you know, oh, this yeah. was a man to... You don't get to be that successful without some kind of willingness to, uh, to 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 go with it. But then he, you know, loathed himself for that as well. Oh, self Without, it, I mean, everyone sort of goes on about how much he hated fame and that we did, but he also fucking loved it. I'm yeah. sure he did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that he, he basically wanted it from an early age. I mean, he's incredibly ambitious. I think for for that band. So the most interesting uh, rock uh, film of recent times, I think, was the Anvil one. Because this was a band who had had a slight bit of success yeah. in the early 80s, and I just still kept going for it. If, if nobody's seen it, the Anvil story is amazing. Oh, it's for fantastic! Yeah, yeah. Um, so you were obviously uh, in playing yourself in Northern Alliance, and I think you actually—did you record as the Oceans? Yeah, we put a postmodern thing to do. Yeah, that that was <laughs> weird because I kind of I wanted to keep it was weird for that. I know, I know, strange. <laughs> But when we wrote, I wrote the book, I deliberately wanted to keep it separate from the music that I was making. Um, but then there was a various sort of string of events where we ended up uh, recording music as the Ossians. Because when I first submitted the manuscript, there was like a lyric quote at the start of every chapter. But it was originally lyrics by other bands, yeah. like bands that might have influenced the Ossians, like, I don't know, Super Furry Animals or Sparkle Horse, blah, 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 you know, loads of indie bands. And my editor then said, oh, that's going to cost you a lot of money. <laughs> Because you need to get clearance, and like yeah. apparently record companies are real bastards for like you know you have to really pay through the nose for like any kind of quote in the lyrics. So she said, "Well, why don't you write some Ossians lyrics with makeup?" So I did. So I just wrote little lyric quotes for the start of right, chapter, yeah. and then some of them were quite good. <laughs> so I thought I don't really want to just have that be an imaginary Toss song. Away, yeah. So I kind of just kept writing more, and then I started writing songs to go with them. And then Craig, that I'm in the Northern Alliance with, I was just like, "Well, why don't we just record, like record some of these? Pretend we're like twenty-year-old snotty." Bright punk kids and uh, make a bit of a racket, so we did. Excellent. And we put it out as a sort of, it's about half an hour's worth of music. And it got better reviews than, than our real bands, <laughs> which is annoying. But there you go. 
Uh, so let's talk a bit about the, the music career. I mean, you, you, you know, you were on, were you on Fence Collective? You were certainly involved with those four. Yeah, but two, two of the records Northern Lions put out um, were Fence releases. They were mm-hmm. kind of, they used to do a picket fence series of like short mini albums. And um, uh, yeah, we put out two of them and two on our own label. Um, I, I don't really know how, I mean, I, I've known Kenny and Johnny from Fence for like years and years. Mm-hmm. Kenny's uh, Kaylee band were like the band, my, my wedding band. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, <laughs> I know. But I was like, yeah, I was kind of, I was at the, you know, the, I was at the first home game. I can't remember if I was reviewing it as a journalist or playing at it or just there as a punter. I honestly can't remember. Mm-hmm. But, um, but they just, they just got on. You know, like Kenny started sending me sort of CDs and stuff, and I got to meet Johnny and kind of just sending each other stuff. And I, I, mean, I sent him some. I sent him. I think we'd already put out our first record by that point, uh, which again was a was a pure accident. We kind of, yeah. me and Craig used to go into his basement and just like get stoned and record and like eventually we had enough stuff for like half an hour's worth of music so we literally just made up a label and put it out uh, and like printed up I don't know how many I, mean, I, just, I sent them off and we started getting like proper reviews like Q reviewed it and we got 4Ks in Kerrang! That's only one higher way to go I'm going to put that on my gravestone Absolutely. 4Ks in Kerrang! Yeah. Uh, and like you know so like we were like gobsmacked people were actually taking it seriously because we weren't really we'd never played live at that point mm-hmm. never, the whole point was that me and Craig were kind of a bit long in the tooth and we'd, we'd been doing the toilet circuit and rehearsing and all that you know rehearsing twice a week and getting a set honed and all that sort of crap for years and years and we got fed up with it so we're like, well, why don't we just fucking forget all that and just go back to making some daft noise like yeah. in the basement? And then, bizarrely, I think the one thing that got us out playing live was Fence because Kenny and Johnny were like, right, do you want to come and play? And uh-huh. we're like, um, well, we don't play live. And it's like, well, well you should. <laughs> and I was like, oh, all right then. But like, it's weird because we had a full band sound. Mm-hmm. There was only three of us really in the band and Viv was only really singing. Um, so we had to just sort of make it up. And I think the first, we did like 10 shows in the first year or something, various fence things and anything else. And we never had the same lineup or instruments ever for any of the gigs because we just had to reinvent it every time because we, we forgot by the time we did the next thing, we forgot what we'd done before. And who was in the band? Um, or who was in the band. <laughs> yeah, we used to get, you know, mates in from other bands, like other fence acts would come in and help. Johnny sat in one time and played. Uh, we had some guys from Redwell came and played with us yeah. sometimes and uh, Candy Thief as well. So. It was just a good laugh, it was a bunch of mates, but I mean, we definitely wouldn't have, I don't know if we would have done as much as we had done if it hadn't been for Fence. Uh, and those two, the two records we did on Fence, because we, those kind of, they didn't really care, they were just like, you know, just give us half an hour's worth and we'll put it out. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were quite experimental, I think. The first one was quite folky, we recorded it in a, week, in a day or a weekend. The second one was quite an, like an electronica record, basically. Um, so it just allowed us to sort of muck about. one of the few places that we'd actually do that yeah just say yeah do whatever you like I'm fascinated that you uh, got that attention I mean I'm sure other folk who are uh, making music were how did you manage to get reviewed with Q but it sounds like it was almost an accident oh we we literally I mean I I had some experience I mean I was a music journalist like freelance but I didn't know anyone at Q or Kerrang or anything like that I just literally was like we like we sent out fifty copies to like reviews editor Q and like we kind of we made up a, we called it forty five B records because forty five B was there was Craig's address where we recorded this stuff right. you know we pretended we had a label we pretended we had distribution and folk like listened to it and liked it I don't it's know. good to know that there are actually <laughs> folks send stuff and folk are still listening to it because you know, should say about John Peel and John Walters was they just got a big bag of cassettes and would actually listen to actually, it when they went in yeah so and you just never know I guess. So, there any relationship between the, the fate of Northern Alliance and the fate of the Aussians? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> did yeah. you kill seagulls? So yes, I did. No, but someone did. It was like that was when I was writing the novel. There was a seagull massacre in Aberdeen. Although it wasn't a drive driving act. Was it a drive? It was, it was a poisoning. Oh, Somebody poisoned a whole bunch of seagulls on the beach up in Aberdeen. And that's the kind of stuff if you like. Uh, you like writing a book and you've got a scene in Aberdeen. You think I know. I'll use that and kill loads of seagulls. That's what we need to do. No, Northern Alliance kind of just, I mean, we're technically we haven't ever really split up. Yeah. Um, we just haven't made any music for a while. I'm still good friends with like Craig and Biff and the band. Um, and it's just a matter of, well, we've kind of got young families now. It's yeah, hard sure. to find the time and all that. Kind of concentrate on writing books and all that. But um, we will definitely, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we do something again in the future. Good. So how did uh, Penguin get interested in Tombstone? In a similar way? Well, I, I actually wrote The Ossians first. Right. Uh, and I sort of touted that around. I didn't have an agent. And I literally, uh, I, I kind of had this manuscript of The Ossians. I didn't know anyone in publishing. I didn't know any writers, didn't know any publishers, agents, anything. And I just started sending it out, emailing people. And, you know, it got widely rejected by <laughs> by everyone. <laughs> like like you do. Yeah, of course. Uh, but one or two people uh, rejected it quite quite nicely. Uh, one of which was Penguin, was Judy Moyer, who was then uh, head of Penguin Scotland. They used to have a Scotland office, they don't anymore, yeah, they closed yeah. it down. Uh, another one was Serpent's Tail, and they, um, you know, very cool independent publisher in London. And they both said, we, we, we quite like this, but for whatever reason, you know, uh, we can't publish it, it's not, you're not quite ready, or marketing don't think they can sell it, you know. Okay. These, but they both said, um, well, if you're writing anything else, you know, let us see it. Which is enough of a sort of spur, of course, to sort yeah. of go, yeah, all right then, because uh, I'm, you know, if I hadn't had that, I genuinely might just have, I might have just given up because I didn't know anyone, didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of put everything into the Oceans and I was like, you know, you know, it's just, it's like a, you've got to. Develop. I've nobody given you a little bit. Of yeah, if you don't get any encouragement, you know, yeah. you start to sort of think, well, fucking, what am I wasting my time? Maybe I really am just totally shit. Everyone's, you know, you just don't know. Mm-hmm. You don't know. Um, so I wrote Tombstone in and. I sent it to those two publishers, to Judy at Penguin and to Service Tale, and they both offered to publish it straight away, basically. Wow. Um, and then I got an agent interested, now that I had an offer on the table. <laughs> Funny that. Which is typical, apparently. <laughs> uh, so it just went from there, and I, I was I was incredibly lucky. I think a lot of it is to do with, um, uh, you know, just getting incredibly fluky. If, you, if the manuscript mm. lands on the right desk at the right time and the person's in the right mood, and you know they're sort of receptive to it and it does sound as though it was hitting into something off the time as well you're writing about I mean now I don't know French writers are still going but for a while it was you know everyone was kind of obsessed with it and that whole idea of, of making contact with folk you hadn't seen in a long time which yeah I don't understand either it's you know there's a reason why you're keeping contact if anyone's listening that I've <laughs> contact with, I do apologise but you know it is, it, for a while it did seem to be uh, you know the, the, the thing that everyone was, was involved with so maybe they saw something in it they went yeah this chimes of the times yeah I mean there was there was a certain amount of that I think and, and I did um, but there, all, there was also the idea that I mean tombstoning was an easier sell in marketing terms and that it is kind of a thriller I mean there are yeah. dead bodies in it and there's a yeah. mystery you know um, and actually in the original version of the Ossians I sent round there wasn't as much plot in it okay. it was a bit too episodic it was just here we are in Aberdeen here we are in Inverness here we are in you know Um, and so I kind of went back and totally rewrote the Austin's actually from scratch um, bearing in the experience of being edited properly by a a real Ah, editor at Penguin uh, really opened my eyes as to what the fuck I was doing or what I should be doing you know and what I wasn't doing Uh, so I mean I went 
back and rewrote the audience uh, more or less from scratch actually. I chucked out half the novel and wrote another half and put in loads of different plot strands and got rid of whole chapters and you know just... And when you pretty... sent it back in was it people go yeah this is more like what we're after? Yes it really was that um, well Judy was very good that she'd said you know I mean I didn't, know, I didn't have a contract for the audience at that point but uh, Tombstoning had come out and she said you know uh, you should think about going back and having another look at that Oh, you know, the Ossians and maybe you know with sort of fresh eyes and see what you think she didn't sort of tell me what to do or anything it was just like you know that there's definitely something there but it just needs to be sharpened you know made yeah. tighter and stuff so that's exactly what I did um, and yeah straight away she was just like yeah this is great definitely want to publish it I, I really I really like the book I think the reason is because it anyone who's ever never mind if you haven't been in a band or you have been in a band that idea for if you had that rock and roll lifestyle even on the smallest budget, you would probably act exactly the same way. Well, that's the life, thing. It's know? like I mean, it's a well-known fact. You know, you basically it's like bands on tour. They're like you know babies. You know, just getting told what you just turn up, and it's like and there's so much monumental amounts of like sitting around doing nothing that you're just desperate to get drunk and take drugs and fuck up. You know, and just just fuck about. You know, we used to I was in a band with Craig a long time ago, and like we had a we went up to Aberdeen <laughs> for like from Edinburgh to Aberdeen. How long does that drive take you? It's like three hours. Three hours, about three hours, huh? And like we were in the back of the van, like the, the guitarist and the singer were in the front being serious. And we had to do, we were doing a radio show on North Sound, like right. live radio, and then we had a gig at night. And me and Craig had a bottle, of, a bottle and a half of gin in the back, <laughs> like in the space of three hours. Oh. We were just drinking it out of like paper cups. Straight gin? Yeah. Wouldn't have anything to mix it with. And so we just basically poured us out of the van, like, you know, at North Sound Studios, and we were just like, couldn't even stand. But because so I just went and floods the tears. Well, because like I was, yeah. Well, because I was the drummer and he was the bassist. Like, we, it's this kind of shit we could do in our sleep. You know, we could play. I could, I could literally, like, not be able to stand, but still play drums. And you get really used to that, which is quite frightening. Yeah, there's a terrific video on uh, YouTube of. I think it's it, if you search for it, it's the drunken, most drunken drummer in the world. It's a guy. It's a wedding band, and it's fantastic. Still playing as he's falling. Falling back, it's terrific. I did that one. There's one gig where we played in a long, long time. This wasn't with Craig. I was in a band called Cheese Grater. <laughs> we were basically sort of like, you know what we were? We were like a cross between Mud Honey and Ned's Atomic Dustbin. Excellent. <laughs> and uh, we used to play a lot of gigs with Dunderfunk. They were like a sort of okay. funk rock, funk metal, like Edinburgh band. Uh, who had sort of label interests and stuff. Kind of, it was like Chili Peppers were kind of big. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, stuff. yeah. We played a lot of gig with it. I mean, came good pals on. We played a gig in Gala Shields at some sort of crappy club. And I literally fell off the back of the stage in the middle of, in the middle of a song. I was so drunk. I literally... That's what like, you want. <laughs> if you're going around small venues, you know, you might as well make the most of it. And if your rider's the only way to go, then that's not well, bad. That's it. You're getting paid in beer, like, yeah. you know? And not food. So, there's a price to pay. <laughs> so, talking about alcohol, how did you uh, did come up with the smokeheads? That was a good link. Talking of oh, alcohol. Man. Oh man, check you, the professional podcaster. This guy's in a pub. Ah, fair enough. Uh, smokeheads. How did I come up with the idea of smokeheads? Uh, Explain what a smokehead is then, for folk who don't get my fantastic link. Oh yeah, well, smokeheads is my, uh, my first favourite book. Was uh, It's... Uh, Whiskey galore meets deliverance. A smokehead is, uh, it, I don't know if it's as widely used as I make out in the book, but it's a term for a fan of I love whiskies. Mm. Uh, and I've always kind of, I loved the idea of that sort of um, enclosed space, like a small island or something, you know, having a, you know, a bunch of guys over there. I love deliverance. 
on all sorts of different levels. I think it's one, yeah, of, the, yeah, I think yeah. it's one of the best books and films yeah. ever made. That um, my, my, uh, when I was far too young, when I'm, I'm thinking, I remember my dad's idea of babysitting would be to sit and watch whatever he was watching, and it was Deliverance. I'm about 10 years old or something like that. Anyway, that's an aside. The thing about Deliverance is, like, you know, the, the sort of famous scene, it's like the squeal like a pig mm. scene, it's like that's that's not nearly the most interesting bit. The most no, interesting bit is just after it, once they've killed the rednecks, yeah. and they have to decide what to do. That's, a, that's the, um, one of the best scenes in film, where they're just, the, the two opposite views are, like, we need to, you know, we need to own up to this, and like, but Reynolds is like, no, wait a minute, we really don't. And it's like, I love those crucial turning points where you, you make a decision and then that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, whatever, you, whatever you decision you make, that's you basically, you know, set on a certain course. Yeah. And I was kind of trying to do something like that, but I thought there was that, that's, that part of me was thinking, you know, I could really write a nice sort of tight thriller like that. At the same time, I remember watching Sideways, you know, the movie Sideways, yeah, the wine it. thing. Yeah. You know, it's like a real throwback to the sort of buddy movies of like the 70s. And a really I nice remember watching thing. that and thinking, could be my future later. <laughs> yep. And I was like watching it thinking, you know, you could do this with whiskey. Mm-hmm. Could, like literally, because there's so much more snobbery about whiskey yeah. than there is wine. You could really have this pretentious whiskey guy and you could have the sort of, you know, the sort of confident flamboyant pal, you know, who's a bit of an asshole, but you know, whatever. And just do something like that. Uh, and so in classic Frankenstein fashion, I just cobbled the two ideas together. <laughs> but the, the group uh, in, in, uh, who go on looking for the perfect bottle of whiskey or who are chasing the smokiest uh, malt they again they knew each other from university they don't seem to have that much in common apart from this uh, thing that they do every is it every year they, yeah well they just it's just sort of, it's not specific it's like they, they meet up occasionally because they've kind of been held together by a sort of love of whiskey they're all yeah. uh, members of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society and one of them's a whiskey buff who works in a whiskey shop the other three aren't so much but they kind of still they've all got their own reasons for still wanting to be involved in that like Roddy wants to be able to Again, some good sort of dog noises exactly. in the background. Yeah. Squeaky toy growl growl. It's like authentic Portobello pub he's noises. Putting, putting <laughs> a special effects guy. The wrong special effect tape, <laughs> But uh, sorry, where was that? Uh, yeah, so I think that's really interesting to have, like, you know, the disparate personalities. Kind of people who might have been they were kind of thrown together as friends at university. Mm. And they have kept in touch. But they're now at the stage where they don't really know why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially the main two, Adam and Roddy. There's this kind of weird symbiotic relationship that they have that they both kind of need each other in a certain way uh, to sort of um, uh, validate their own personality or their, or their own feelings or their own reasons for you know how they are. Uh, so I thought that was a really interesting dynamic, and, and that's the main one in the book, I think. Yeah. Um, what struck me about it was uh, it's a thriller in every sense. It's it seemed to mark a real. Um, Step forward, is that the right word? And you're writing because you feel like this is what you want to do. That's what I got from it anyway. This is this is a, a, a book which um, you wanted to, you were proud of. You wanted to write and get out. I'm not saying you weren't proud of the other ones, <laughs> but um, that's how I felt about it when I read it. I went, no, this is someone, this is what he wants to write. You know, when I was writing it, it, it felt right. You know, it felt right. I, it's, it's interesting how it came about, actually, because after The Oceans got published, I wrote uh, another novel which remains unpublished, uh, which I spent 18 months on, which is a long time for me, and it was a big, long, massive, kind of like a family saga thing. Set in contemporary Scotland, but it was, it was it had a much bigger time scale and a much bigger scope, and there was five or six different you know, narrative points of view, and blah, 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 and I kind of worked really hard on it, and in the end, I, I fucking hated it. I just couldn't be yeah. bothered with it. I mean, I didn't really send it out uh, to any, any publishers, because uh, I, I wasn't really uh, convinced about it. Yeah. And kind of as an antidote to that, 
I just wrote Smokeheads. Like, I just thought, like, fuck it, I'm just going to write the shortest, sharpest, nastiest book I can, basically. Um, chuck in some laughs in there, hopefully, as well. Yeah. And, like, and it, it came really quickly, and it just, uh, there's something about that, I think, that if you write a book, if it feels, if it's easy to write, then it, yeah, then it shouldn't that, be too much of a struggle. It shouldn't be too much of a struggle, I think, because I really the one novel that I've really struggled on is the one that I'm not happy with and mm. it hasn't been published. So go figure. There's something in that for yeah. me anyway. I mean, yeah, other, yeah. other writers are, probably, are maybe I, different, I, but you've said before, aren't you? You've maybe even said to me that uh, the idea of kind of writing as an art puts your teeth on edge as well. That you know, it's just writing. Um, would you say that having tried to write a family? saga that that maybe was an attempt to, to write something bigger that you thought you know this is what people might expect or what I should be doing but actually what I really want to do is you know kill people and uh, <laughs> smash cars and uh, yeah I just kind of I think what it was it's just a matter of um, it wasn't like I felt like that's what I should be writing it was like I just hadn't I just hadn't worked out exactly what I should be writing mm. you know and I was just trying things which is fine I think I'll, I mean that's how you learn you know you yeah, learn by mistakes and all that sort of stuff and then um, yeah I, I mean I, I've never been concerned with the sort of this high, there's, there's a sort of you know there's a, a school of literary writing which um, where people think of it as art and stuff it's not art it's a it's a, it's a craft it's yeah it's, I agree with you actually, it's storytelling yeah. craft I mean there are I mean um, but then all I mean I sense all art is a is a craft you know find painting yeah. find you know I suppose yeah but I I just I'm, I'm more interested in um, you know really sort of short sharp. Um, lean storytelling is kind of yeah. is my main objective these days. Uh, I, I'm to a point I'm getting kind of sort of pathological about. It. I mean, I read a lot of uh, noir books. My agent, who's a huge noir fan, um, just put me onto a whole lot of stuff, and I was reading a lot of classic noir from America in like 30s, 40s, 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just like, uh, I could, I was just totally blown away. I hadn't read any of that stuff before, uh, and I was absolutely blown away by how you could. And get so much into like a hundred pages of seemingly nothing, but you can, you know, you can huge amounts of character and plot and you know comment on the human condition and and, um, and social observation just from like you know, it's a real skill and it, um, it is yeah, but it, but it very often gets overlooked because <laughs> someone gonna shoot that fucking door, um, but you got to because uh, literally people like to talk about literally it's like there's a style of writing where it's like showing off I can't stand that it's like the, the, the author yeah. should be invisible the author shouldn't be yeah. involved in the whole yeah. process there should be the reader and the story I agree and the author should be uh, like absolutely anonymous in that in that relationship I mean even, even some writers that I quite like I am aware of them you know kind of going look how clever I am uh, and you're right they shouldn't, you shouldn't be like that you should just get into the tale and and, and there's an interesting thing like Stephen uh, if you read uh, Stephen King's got a brilliant book on writing yeah I've read it yeah and I think he says I mean I think it opens the book opens with him saying like you know the one question he never gets asked is about the craft about the choice of language mm-hmm. and it's like you know don't think I, I'm totally paraphrasing him here but his general gist is you know don't think just because I use simple language don't think that I don't sweat just as much yeah. like over every single one of those one syllable words yeah. you know as, as much as Will Self does flicking through his fucking thesaurus or whatever it is he mm-hmm. does like to get his crazy words that you never heard of you know you know he's absolutely about you know as skilled a user of words as someone who is more obviously showing off about their use of language yeah. you know and you have to be very good writer to get away with using the thesaurus if you do I mean you really a lot of people try and do it and you're right it just never ever works but 
I think some of the stuff we never get to read because they try it and you know, people go, no, no, I'm not having that. Um, so the, the new novel, Hit and Run, I think take, you were saying it's almost pathological. I can see that in this because this is a, it's, it's a, the fastest paced novel I think I've ever read, absolutely. Yeah. And in a, in a really great way. Yeah. It, it really is. It's just, you know, you're in, suddenly you're in the car, as I think I said when I wrote my review of it, you're in the car. It's just like, there's actually dog fighting in pubs in Edinburgh still, folk. You know? <laughs> you know it's all right. It's all kicking off. <laughs> it's okay. I've got a fiver on the collie. Yeah. That poodle looks mean. Okay, this is. <laughs> Do you know what? Should we have a break and get a pint? Yeah, let's get a beer and come back. <laughs> right, All right, okay, we're back. The dog is dead, everyone. <laughs> we have killed the dog. Uh, and we were talking about um, hit and run. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. We were talking about hit and run and how a. Speaking of dead dogs. Yeah, you, you, you're. <laughs> You're immediately you're in you're in the I think I wrote that you were in the car with the, the folk that that's again I'm not going to labour the point but you know there is a car crash at the beginning. Um, did you when you set out to do this was it you were going to do this as quickly as no I don't mean write it as quickly as possible but get the action in as quickly as possible? Yes, it really was. I, I, it's kind of it's been a sort of, I mean you're always learning as a writer and I think and I was. Um, I was really keen, I, I was very aware that none of my books up until this point had uh, had just launched you right in at the action. Like yeah. Smokeheads, you know, for all it's a thriller, I mean, the first hundred pages are sort of knockabout road trip banner, yeah, right, you know, yeah. buddy movie type stuff. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, it's nice colour and all that and stuff, uh, and, it, and it builds up, hopefully there's some tension, but it's not, there's not anything great, any great hook until sort of, you know, the car crash in Smokeheads, mm-hmm. funnily enough. So, uh, yeah, this was a very conscious effort to start with you know, a shocking uh, and in- <coughs> inciting incident, as it were. Uh, and it's like that thing I was talking about, deliverance, that moment of decision. Absolutely. Where, I mean, that's what happens after the car crash. They make a, they're rushed into making a split-second decision, effectively, on what to do. And that's, you know, once they do that, that's the, the path of what they do is... That's what got me about the book, was that... I mean, I think anyone who's ever been... You know, in a, in a, in a, any any situation you think this could go badly wrong, and you make the decision, and if you get out okay, you're lucky because it just makes that split. You know, turn left instead of right, and you could be in that situation. That totally it happens all the time. You know, you, how many times are you you're in a sort of stressful situation, and you know, you have that sort of strange relief afterwards. You go, well, imagine if, mm. what if this had happened? What if that had happened? What if, like, you know. I don't know, what if they'd found that drugs in the back of the car yeah. and going across the border, or whatever. Not that I'm suggesting you're a drug oh, smuggler, yeah. Ali. But, um, you know, or anything, or any kind of thing, you know, you've got to think, you know, what's going to, what's the driving the, the reader on? The reader has to, th- I mean, I, I'm very interested in, I'm not interested in heroes and villains at all, I'm interested in people like you and me, and putting us into extraordinary circumstances, and seeing how, like, how we cope with that, yeah. how these characters cope with it. That's what comes, I mean, the, the, Three books that I have read, The Austin Smoke and Hit and Run, that's what happens to everyone. The, the central characters find themselves in situations where folk reading them would hope, I could be in these situations, and I thank goodness that I ain't. <laughs> Good, thank goodness. I, I yes. thank goodness. I, I always say thank God. Yeah, I, 
But, uh, but I'm, I'm just thankful that I haven't gotten myself in that situation because it could easily have happened. Yeah, well, that's, I think that's that's a great hook for any you know reader because you know because you're immediately putting your you've immediately got some kind of empathy with the, with the main characters in the book between the reader, yeah, yeah, the reader yeah, and the characters because uh-huh. you know because it could be it doesn't necessarily have to be sympathy. Empathy and sympathy are very different things. Mm-hmm. I think. And I'm, I'm very wary of. I'm not. I'm, I'm not very good at writing very sympathetic characters, but I prefer emp- empathetic characters, if that's a word, because you know, the, the, um, because the kind of all the, the characters that are most interesting to me are conflicted ones, people who not aren't necessarily, you know, all good or all bad. Yeah, and yeah. Billy in, in Hit and Run is is generally a good guy. Yeah. But he's found himself in a situation where he's doing really quite bad things and getting sucked further into doing yeah, exactly. the worst things, and he can't really do anything about it. It seems. It's simply human nature, obviously. He's trying to even put things right, but even if he's, as he's trying to put things right, something else will come along, whether it's to tempt him or to, to take him down a different path, which he probably knows isn't the right thing to do, but goes down it anyway. And he's obviously suffering from, you know, not just physical after effects of the car crash, but there's like, you know, there's obviously some sort of post-traumatic stress thing going on, combined with guilt and shame and all mm-hmm. the rest. And when he starts getting involved with uh, the widow, it's just. I love I loved writing some of those scenes because it was just <laughs> just cause the, the two of them because it's because they're both so painfully damaged yeah. and, the, and the other the great thing that I think hopefully works for the reader reading Hit and Run is that um, is that the reader knows something that Billy knows that no one else knows mm-hmm. throughout the whole you know they know that, that he's been it was him that was driving this car mm-hmm. and that's immediately um, you've got this kind of one-upmanship so the reader like knows what the other reporters don't know, the police don't know, what the widow doesn't know. Yeah. And that's immediately another source of tension in the book, you know, in the narrative. Because you think, well, they can't not know forever. So yeah. eventually this is going to have to come out and it's going to be bad. <laughs> and the thing that links, the, the, you know, bo- both lives are, uh, are were made worse by this one guy who is now, you know, is absent from the novel. Yeah. And uh, it's, I think it's a great uh, relationship and... The other great relationship is the one between uh, him and his boss at the newspaper. Oh, Rose. Yeah, she's a terrific character. It's funny, yeah. Every, I mean, it's funny when I came up with her. Uh, just, it's really easy to write. It just came really quickly and uh, it just seemed like a really... Na- I mean, I, I, it's not based on anyone specific. Okay, um, that's what I wondered. Yeah, I know. <laughs> everyone, everyone asked me that. And in fact, my here's a story for you. My Somebody this from sales at mm-hmm. Faber um, was driving me around like I was signing copies of watch things and she and he said to me, Have you met XX, I wouldn't mm. say the name, who's another crime writer. Right. A former journalist who's now a crime writer. And I said, No, I've not met her. And he's like, because basically that is Rose. <laughs> it's like it's it's like you've based Rose totally on her. And I was well, like, that's great. I've I mean, never it's met so her. Vivid and yeah. It comes off the page and, and, and if somebody is saying, Yeah, I think I know that because I even thought, yeah, I think I, I was trying to work out who does who does this remind me of? I don't have no idea but uh, yeah, and it's, and it's a really nice relationship between the two of them because I mean she comes out with all good lines, you know she's really nice, and um, I could see if things didn't if things didn't pan out quite so badly at the end, I could see myself writing a sequel with those with those two. Yeah, you know because there's enough of sort of it's a really weird sort of buddy relationship because they're kind of looking out for each other and you know yeah exactly both guys. But she she kind of. Uh, she knows he's doing things which probably she shouldn't allow him to do, but she, she trusts him enough to go and do it, and, yeah. uh, and that's probably the only trust he's got in the whole, yeah, uh, in the whole book. She's pretty much the only guiding light, I think, in the yeah. whole thing. Hey, so what next? What are you what are you up to next? Well, the next novel is written. Oh, fine. It's done, and it's currently uh, under consideration at Faber. Right. If you're having a look at it. Um, it's called Washed Up and it's set in Portie. Okay. 
uh, it's not the first thing I've written. That unpublished novel was also set in Portobello, uh, but it's um, it's another sort of it's kind of it's a missing person thing basically. Um, without I don't really mind jinxing it. It's, it's about a guy whose wife goes missing. You know, right, okay. chapter one. Um, she's and so they've got a young child, and he has to sort of find out what's happened to her while also looking after his son. She went missing before, just after the birth of the first son with postnatal depression. She kind of went off, uh, so and she's pregnant again. So he thinks maybe it's something to do with that. But you know he has to find out basically, and no one really takes it seriously because I mean, I started you know did a lot of research on missing persons and stuff. And it's really quite frightening, mm. um, and there's like three hundred thousand people go missing every year in the UK. Really? Yeah. God. And like uh, you know one third one third of them turn up you know relatively um, quickly, right. safe and sound. But that means two thirds of them don't. Yeah, I mean a lot of that is you know kids and elderly people who are infirm or you know whatever. Sure. But it's still like two hundred thousand people. That's, in, that's, that's an insane it. number that of people. Mad. And uh, I know if you've read Andrew Hagen's book, The Missing. Yes, you know, yeah. I like, just find it really fascinating that whole idea about how people can just drop off the map. Yeah. You know, and just and a lot of these people, you know, it's because of mental illness or they just want a fresh start and just you know they try to set themselves up again somewhere. And I just find that totally fascinating. That thing. So that was the kind of initial. Um, premise that got this this whole thing, whole ball rolling. That turned into kind of something else uh, to a certain extent, but it's um, so fingers crossed. How, how kind of much research do you do when you do the? I mean, I'm thinking hit and run. There's a lot of uh, stuff with uh, oh, gangsters. I suppose they would call themselves. I'm not saying that you hung about a lot as gangsters, but I mean, how, <laughs> how uh, they, they, they're, they're crime reporters basically. So. Did you do research for that as well? Not a hu- I mean, not a huge amount. Some I certainly do research stuff. Um, I, I tend to do as much research as I can be asked doing. Really, um, Aye. <laughs> uh, enough and, and quite a lot. It's quite interesting that a lot of the, I mean, something like ninety percent, ninety-five percent of the research stuff you do never gets used. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to write big, long sort of character profiles and sort of plot ideas and have download you know screens and stuff. I mean, like this missing persons thing. I was basically. You know, I read loads of official documents about missing persons and all sort of stuff, uh, and I get page after page of character um, sort of sketch stuff, uh, which never really goes into the book. I mean, the idea is to um, write the novel informed by that, so you've got that information in your head, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to go down the page. That's really interesting. It sounds like uh, when uh, an actor goes to his role and he says, well, I know the backstory, I know where the person's born, I know the relationships, but it never comes out, but it does come into yeah. the performance. And I would say, even though I've seen that it's particularly smoked heads and hit and run, are quick sounds wrong. I mean, it sounds like it's a terrible, really fast <laughs> books. Um, the characters absolutely stand out. You know that it's not just a person A, person B, this person does a bad thing, this person is, you know, I, they're, they're fully rounded characters. And to do that in uh, while all this action is going on as well, I think it's interesting. And to say that, that you, you know yeah. where they've come from and perhaps even where they're going uh, makes sense, having read them. Well, it's interesting, like, the difference between the first two books and the second two books, another one difference is that I, uh, the first two books were, apart from being 20,000 words longer, they're about 80,000 words, but they were written... Uh, they were overwritten in the first draft, you know, a hundred thousand words or something like that, and then cut down and cut down and cut down. Okay. Whereas with Smokeheads and uh, Hit and Run, uh, they were written. The first drafts were like shorter, fifty thousand, and I would like, you know, and go back and look at it and go, look, I haven't included any backstory whatsoever for any of these characters. I'm going to have to throw the reader a bone or two, <laughs> you know, give them like at least something to hang on because I mean I've got the backstory. Yeah. It's all there. It's in my notes. Thousands and thousands of words of notes. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but I haven't put any of it in. I was like, well, I'm going to have to chuck a paragraph in here or there just to explain where they grew up or, you know, what their relationship is with this, that or the other, and you know. Um, and so I kind of gradually, it's like, it's a, it's a totally different way of writing. I was kind of just splurging before yeah. and then stripping it back. And now it's like I'm, I'm just kind of putting down the sort of bare bones and then, and then trying up. to flesh out as little as possible, yeah. just enough to give people a feel for the character and the situation and the plot and all the rest of it. That's really interesting. I think, you know, when it comes to editing it, it must be such a different thing to say, well, you know, you don't need all of this and and actually I need a little bit more of that and a little bit more of that. It's one easier than the other. I don't know. It's not, I mean, I mean, I quite like editing down from, you know, I mean, because I'm quite good at, I'm quite ruthless at editing on work and just sort of cutting and cutting and cutting. I don't mind doing that, but at the same time, I think I find that easier. than, than adding stuff in. Yeah. That's just the way it happens at the moment. I mean, with, um, with the one that's, with my new one that I've mm-hmm. just finished, uh, a couple of folk that, you know, I kind of respect their opinions, I let them read it, and Alan Guthrie, who's my agent, was mm-hmm. one of them, and he said to me, and this is great coming from Al, who writes brilliant, sort of fast paced noir ones, he was like, Doug, you need to write a slow scene. You need to write, you need to let the reader actually get breathe. a fucking breath. <laughs> can understand that, I, I really can. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, you're going to have to stop and pause because it's just relentless. Like, you're basically, you're, make, you're gonna make the reader physically sick. <laughs> and then, there is a sense of vertigo or something by the end of it. And, uh, and Helen Fitzgerald, who's the other writer who I, yeah. I really admire, and, and she uh, she came back with something similar. She was like, you're gonna have to add a bit of heart. Because like, she's, one of her editors uh, for a, a young adult novel she's writing in America said this like, that's fine, but go back and like add some heart. Just let us know, because it tends to be the first half of the book or the first two thirds of the book are written with plenty of heart, and then when it gets to the, you know, the big action, it turns into almost a screenplay where you're just, you're just directing the characters about because you've done all the sort of character, you know, you've yeah. done the build up, uh, but, but you have to in- inject some of that heart into the last third as well, just to remind the reader why they care. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, yeah that's an interesting point, and I think that's where the relationship between Rose and Billy, particularly, that's where the heart, if you want, is yeah. in the book. And yeah, it's kind of, yeah, by the end of Hit and Run, it's like. I don't know. It's, it's, I don't think I don't think quick or fast or insulting at all. I think no, that's good. Um, we'll talk a little bit about other Scottish writers that are kicking about just now. Who do you like? And I'm not going to ask you who you don't like. I think it'll be completely unfair. <laughs> but uh, you know, how do you think things are at the moment? Oh, the old Scottish literature oh, question. Be, you know, I think I, I, you know, I've been been reading stuff for a long time. I think it's a really interesting time. Just like, I think there's a lot of interesting writers. I think it is. I, I don't really. Um, much concern myself with that to be honest yeah. with you I kind of um, I've never really felt part of any um, literary scene or anything uh, ma- maybe I'm not sure anyone really no, does I'm not sure, yeah you're probably right probably no one does but I, maybe it's because I have a different background of science background and I you know I, I never studied English even let alone yeah, creative writing yeah, yeah, yeah. so I don't really and you know there, and there's you know there's, there are plenty of great writers it's, there's more probably there's more of a scene if you like in better commas in Glasgow yeah. than there is anywhere else uh, which is no bad thing, and, and you know, there's lots of great writers being very supportive of each other. I mean, my favourite writers in Scotland are two I've mentioned, Alan Guthrie and Helen Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I mean, sort of really kind of, I mean, I'm just totally on a noir trip at the moment. Yeah. Ray, Ray Banks is another brilliant oh, yeah, writer. Yeah. I just think Ray is, I mean, I think he technically qualifies as Scottish. He's born in Scotland, mm-hmm. but if he lives in England or not at the moment. Um, and uh, some of uh, Annalisa McIntosh. Who is relatively unpublished? She's got, I mean, she's this yeah. uh, amazing collection of stories that she's trying to get published. And I, 
absolutely blew me away. Um, I've read some of her short stuff and it's fantastic. It's amazing. It's, I'm, our, our stuff she's writing at the moment. And um, my other favourite writer, favourite, favourite writer, is Ewan Morrison. I think he's mm. just doing things like never this weird I went back and read his first book of stories again recently yeah. I hadn't I, read I love absolutely love I hadn't that. read them since they came out I just yeah. like I was it was all there it was all there back in 2005 yeah. it was like everything it's like oh my he's so I fucking far, he's so far that book is so far ahead of the curve now yeah like seven years later I bought that I knew nothing about him never heard of him it was just one of these punts that you take sometimes and I went who the hell is this guy and then you know the novels come out and which I, I like but I think that might be his favourite book of his so far I can't, well, well it's I, interesting I mean he'll, he'll be the first to admit I think that he I mean his novels are great I love his novels I think Swung especially is brilliant yeah. um, but the novels are great but he's a better story writer than he is a novelist I think, yeah, he's I probably, think and he'll probably admit that as well and his next book coming out Cargo we're publishing uh, is Tales from the Mall yeah. thing which is absolutely amazing yeah. I totally believe he showed me an early copy a long time ago yeah, kind of yeah, asked for some. I've had a read of it and I just can't wait oh, I can't, it. It's, it totally blew my head off man it's, he, he is becoming this kind of Scotland's interesting cultural commentator and all sorts and I like <laughs> that you know it's oh like, man you know, I'm, good pal, I'm good pals with you and man he's like Mr Doom and Gloom but we have a fucking laugh oh god <laughs> the book is dead like the internet's killed everything it's hilarious but I can imagine the two of you going oh. hey, everything's crap oh, oh yeah I want to just kill folk yeah. now yeah. How, how's <laughs> anyone going to make any money fuck it well his, the great thing about his is like since he did this Guardian thing last year he yes. did a Guardian blog about how the, basically the books are dead uh, and the internet's killed everyone and um, the irony is that he's made more money talking about how books are dead in the last year than he ever made from writing books yeah. <laughs> just, just I think it's genius he goes on like lecture tours and stuff and gets told to tell everyone that books are dead and he really gets folk get really angry I know I saw him do one at like the electric bookshop is that what it's called the thing there's a thing in Edinburgh okay uh, and he was just saying stuff you know it was the same stuff and like it was a room full of sort of publishing students or like librarians and stuff and folk were like angrily yeah. putting their hands up and shouting him down and it's like this is awesome people are getting really angry I saw him do the, t the same talk I think at the CCA and it was a similar thing most people were just really interested in what he's saying but there was a few folk that were you know if they could have had a swing at him they would have done it <laughs> and really but uh, yeah I can't I, I can't wait to see what happens from Tales from the Mogs I think it could be a, a, a fascinating uh, reaction to it as well. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a game changer it's absolutely because it's got fiction and it's but it's got crowdsourced stuff like he basically looked for you know people who worked in malls or you know and had their own yeah, sort of little interview and there's, there's interview, well there's like urban myth. he's retold people's stories in as simple as language as possible and there's like factual stuff about you know the decline of malls in the US recently mm -hmm. and how it's a bubble that's burst over there and other stuff it's just some of it's heartbreaking some of it's beautiful and just uh, everything about it it's just so fucking clever what a bastard yeah <laughs> Uh, it's interesting you should say that because uh, our pal of mine lives down in London and in, in Shepherd's Bush and they opened the Westfield uh, which was the biggest shopping centre or shopping mall in, in Europe just as the recession kicked in and still to this day there's just thousands not hundreds of you know units which are empty because yeah. you know, this idea of shopping like that only works when people think they've got lots of money yeah um, right I think we just we do these we questions which I should have told you about beforehand but never mind um, for you six normally there's five but for you there's six oh, questions you got an excellent one you got an one yeah which you probably know what's coming up uh, what if you could say is your favourite book of all time favourite book of all time 
It's probably uh, a book called Preston Falls by a writer mm. called David Gates. Uh, I don't know if you've read it. But like, I haven't. Like, I know the name of it. He's not very well. No, I mean he's like American writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, two novels and a book of stories, book of short stories, about ten years ago, maybe longer ago. And they were, I think they were, they were Pulitzer nominated, and or they were kind of, they don't, but never really sold well. I never really. Like I think that's how not, they were not. Yeah, that's right. They were kind of um, well thought of, I think, critically. Yeah. And he's, I think he still is, or he's a music writer for Newsweek or for, for a magazine in America anyway. But it's, I mean, he's just a, just a brilliant, brilliant writer. Um, and Preston Falls is just, it's, it's a really simple story about a guy who has a midlife crisis, like an advertising executive who goes up to like upstate New York to Preston Falls and uh-huh. tries to do up a house, and it just ends very badly. This wasn't made into a film, was it? No, no, I, no, I so. don't know. It just rings a bell so much, but it's I haven't just, read it. He's, you know what he's so good at? It's like, you know that, it's kind of it's getting tied up in sort of kind of ironic self-referential knocks and like kind of this guy's like a total jaded burnout guy and it's just it, it captures that mindset of like you know a million things going through your mind and you, you know you're trying to find trying to find something real but being too wrapped up in irony and you know kind of knowing all that he's cynical yeah you know? yeah yeah um, but he just gets it brilliantly he just really gets it it's fucking amazing about writing uh, well to follow on from that uh, actually before we follow on from that you know you're saying your favourite writers Helen Fitzgerald and, and Ray Banks and stuff like that you worry about I mean you shouldn't worry and I don't worry about it but it's, it always comes up that you know you write thrillers and there seems to be this problem that some people have that genre fiction somehow is a lesser form of writing it's nonsense have I just answered that? Yeah, was there a question then? Yeah, well, probably not. <laughs> no, I, I think... Um, I think I did say, do you worry at one point? Anyone who thinks that literary fiction is in any way superior to any other genre, because literary fiction is a genre of fiction, is an idiot, because it's just literary fiction is just another kind of fiction. Yeah, I am. As is, you know... I had a conversation crime, with someone recently exactly this thing, yeah. Um, I, I just, it's just... It's kind of absurd, really. Mm. I, I'm not... I don't really pay much attention. Yeah. Um... Yeah, people keep saying to me after I switched from uh, Penguin to Faber, I was I'm on Faber's crime and thriller list. Mm. Uh, so I'm and folk were saying to me, how does it feel to be folk referring to you as a crime writer? I, was like, I couldn't give a fuck. Yeah, I could not give a shit. <laughs> I <laughs> talk to you, man. Uh, just read the book and like you either <laughs> like it or you don't. You know, I mean, there are there are brilliant there are um, there are brilliant examples of writing in every kind of genre and that includes literary yeah, fiction it includes yeah. you know sci-fi fantasy romance anything like that and there's you know there's a lot of dross it's stuff you it. like and yeah. stuff you don't like basically yeah I know I, I just I keep hearing this coming up that you know well it's a lack of literary ambition I don't know what that means I really don't know what that means I'm not trying to you know but anyway I know um, favourite writer what favourite writer uh, if you have one <laughs> Favourite writer? Favourite writer in the whole world? Well, David Gates would be up there because he's only. He's had, he's, I wish he'd write more, man. David Gates, if you're listening. Get some. If you're listening to this, then <laughs> you're doing much better than I ever expected. <laughs> this is getting to upstate New York. Uh, I don't know. I, I, it just changes from day to day. Um, God, Cormac McCarthy, maybe. Oh, yeah. Morris, yeah. Oh, God, fucking the road. Jesus Christ, man. I, I had this conversation with you and Morrison, and he was like, Have you read the road? I was like, Yeah. And he was like, why are we bothering? <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, man. Why are we fucking bothering? Man? That's just like, I don't know. Some days it's it's him. Some days it's you know. Yeah, change. I don't know these are stupid questions, but folks seem to like. It's good. It's good. Um, favorite band slash music. Um, probably. You're an indie. Yeah, in, indie, schmindy. Uh, um, my favorite 
band would probably be Sparkle Horse. Yeah, excellent. Uh, or a closer rock would be something like Wilco, maybe in that kind of ballpark. But Sparkle Horse, yeah, I just was when I first heard Viva Dixie in the yeah. first album, it's just like I could not believe how good it was. And it was on a major label as well. It was weird. It was Columbia. It would take a punt on something like that because yeah. it was just you know. But it was just beautiful. And I, I had this, I had the great privilege of interviewing him a few times. Met him a few okay. times. Um, and he was just the sweetest, nicest, quietest guy. Um, and just a bit of an inspiration, really. Yeah. And he never did a foot wrong. And uh, and like and everything about him, just he was really indie-minded. I mean, I'm sure. Do you know the second album? Uh, what's the what's the the single off it? Like whatever it is. It's, it's, basically, there's a song, and like you could just and he, he tells a story. Like in an, an interview, he says like yeah, they, they got me into sort of a meeting in the office. Uh huh. And like we really think we've got like a smash hit on our hands. Here. This could be like the sort of MTV MTV breakthrough. Like we're gonna really make some money on you. And like and he's like fine. We went back to the studio and he basically buried the first half of the song in static. <laughs> and like that's the one that the radio sort of comes in and out and goes and he mixes it up with like you know old like Captain Howdy nonsense and stuff and just, just to fuck it up and then insisted that, that that was how it was going to be on the album so they couldn't release it as a single so he really was the guy who went yeah I don't want to do this and he was completely aware that he, he was, was destroying he was capable of writing these beautiful like Beatlesque harmonies yeah, and just yeah. these really simple beautiful little songs there would have been hit singles if he'd you know if he'd given them a shiny fucking gloss yeah but he just wasn't interested I think that's, I think that's amazing Absolutely. Great choice. And Wilco as well. Favourite of mine. Um, Favourite film? Film. Um, I don't know, that changes all the time as well. I kind of, well, we talked about Deliverance earlier, that was interesting. I kind of, I like the 70s. Film. I haven't watched Deliverance for ages, I must watch it again. It's, uh, uh, it is a phenomenal film. I don't know, I, I do like Fight Club. Oh, okay. It's a really interesting, oh, okay. it's a really interesting example of making a brilliant like Trainspot is another one making a brilliant film out of a apparently unfilmable book you know yeah. it seemed like it's a weird like you don't think they're going to be able to make it how the fuck are they going to make a film out of this sure. but like David Fitcher really got the spirit of it I think yeah, it's I just think brilliant right. I can't it's one of those ones that's always on late at night in telly and whenever, if, if I catch it it's like oh fuck I'm going to be up for another two hours <laughs> so it's like no matter what time it is how knackered or drunk you are it's like I'm going to have to sit and watch all this because yeah, it's yeah. just awesome but then other um, other things crop up I don't know what else what else is there I really, I love really clever, tight little thrillers. More recent, the most recent one, best recent film I saw was The Disappearance of Alice Creed. It's like oh, a low-budget British yeah. thing. No, who was the main actor in that? It's a brilliant actor. Oh, it's got the young Scott, Billy, Scottish guy who was in Sweet Sixteen. Is in it? And Gemma Arterton. Gemma Arterton. She's yeah. in it. And that other and Eddie guy. Marston. Is that the guy who's I, in? Happy Go Lucky and various Gangs similar. of New York and yeah, 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 yeah. Fantastic yeah. actor. But it's like, I mean, it must have cost them next to nothing to make because it's all in one Martin room. Was Martin Compton, that? Martin Compton, yeah, sorry, not Billy, yeah. Martin Compton. And uh, it's just a really clever, tight, funny, um, low budget filler. Uh, not funny, it's not funny at all, sorry. It's really not funny. But it's just, it's just so well done. I'm kind of, because I'm sort of dipping my toes into screenwriting waters right. at the moment. Uh, and I'm just really interested in these sort of films that's on a low budget British kind of what. What's a success and how you actually get it to work? It's really, it's a very different discipline, I think. So I'm very interested, very interested in that at the moment. Oh, okay, I'm interested to see what you do <laughs> from that. Without a doubt. Uh, your your extra question is at the moment: What are you drinking? What's your whiskey of 
that you would recommend? This is just for me, basically. Well, I did. You know what? My when Hit and Run came out the other day, I went and bought myself a nice wee present, which was a bottle of that Ardbeg Ugadal, right? Which is one of their kind of limited edition ones. It's about fifty quid a pop. Oh, fucking! Mm-hmm. I was really treating myself. Uh, but it's a bit of a blast. It's fucking fifty-four percent, Jesus. But um, but it's uh, yeah. Ard, I think I'm in a bit of an Ardbeg tip at the moment. Okay, excellent. And uh, finally, we have this thing, which everyone kind of goes, "What the hell are you talking about?" But event, whether it's concert. Book your head, whatever that changed your life. That thought that's what, um, yeah, things that things are going to be different from now. And I want to do something else. I mean, it's interesting. You say you get the science background. So, what made you decide to go down this more artistic? Or were they always hand in hand? Were you well, always? I was kind of always in. It was music that kind of. I was writing uh, short stories, and I was in a band, and I was writing. I kind of run a little fanzine thing in Edinburgh for a while. Uh, at the same time, as doing the sort of science stuff, and um, I started to write reviews of gigs mm-hmm. and sort of send them off to like the list and uh, there was a what they call uh, making music it's like yeah. you know free music shop magazines and stuff and I got a couple of things printed and um, I just thought I'm never going to make a go of this unless I quit my high paid graduate nuclear <laughs> physics job and uh, I become a freelance this goes mu- back to the Aussies how to destroy I'm, I'm, bec- I'm become a freelance music journalist <laughs> which uh which, aye, my mum was well chuffed for that. I can imagine. Uh, oh yeah, I've, I've quit that job, mum. Huh? Oh yeah, what are you going to do? I'm going to write about Sparkle Horse. Aye, well done. I've met this guy in my point house. He's inspired me. He puts static over the fucking yeah, music. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, one single event, I don't know. What would it be? What would it be? Yeah, maybe. I, I remember going to see... Oh my God. Um, it doesn't really reflect any of my own music or mm. uh, book stuff. But I saw Mercury Rev playing... Um, at Potter Row right. and supporting them as the Flaming Lips. Oh, wow. And like back when neither of oh, them really had a. F- I think it must have been when uh, Deserter Songs Desert had just come Songs, out, yeah. I think. And like Flaming Lips, I don't think the Soft Bulletin had come out yet, or it's around about that time. Mm-hmm. But like it was just, they were doing, still had the fake blood and the hand puppets <laughs> and the fucking crazy <laughs> oh, stuff. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, my, picking uh, my fucking jaw off the floor, going, oh my god. Because they were like an, a totally out and out indie band. Yeah. But they were like the showmanship stuff. Yeah, and just, I, absolutely. And uh, just some of the stuff that like Wayne Coy was doing, it's just amazing. Just and so like generating an atmosphere amongst a bunch of cynical, tousle-haired indie kids. Yeah. But like it was a total sense of euphoria, and like that just grew and grew and grew. And you saw them doing like Glastonbury and stuff, you know, getting folk on stage and animal outfits dancing and just you know, giant balloons and crazy nonsense. And it's just it's like it's like a rave, but like indie music. Yeah. And I just remember seeing that, thinking, wow. That and it was it kept it kept the kind of indie you know, heart to what they did while still yeah. putting on a show. Absolutely. And there was nothing wrong with that. Amazing. Well, I think, uh, it's probably my shout at the bar, so, uh, <laughs> Must be mine, but I <laughs> Thanks very much, Doug. I really, yeah, that was great. It's been and, a pleasure. And, uh, we'll, uh, uh, see how, you next we, time. how are we going to get rid of those dog corpses? Oh, they're dog you're corpses. Taking them back to, a problem. You're taking them back to Glasgow, I right? can stick them in my bag, take them back to Glasgow. People need fed through in Glasgow. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> cheers, we'll see you next no, time. No, cheers, Thanks. Man.